Well, good morning, folks. That's good to be with you this morning. If, you, if, I mean, if you're new with us, you haven't been here the last couple weeks, the reason that people are wearing jerseys is because, well, um, basically because John made us. So <laughs> there's really no other reason, right, uh, other than that. I think, uh, I think he, what he was going for was kind of the unity and diversity, you know, so like even though we all support different teams, like we're all one family. And we happen to be talking about family today, so uh, ho- so hopefully, see, here, here's what we're going to be talking about. I'm going to give you a preview of the message, that, that God, because of His Son, treated enemies like children. And so if you can treat me, even though I've got this on, as though I'm part of the family, then I'll know you're doing okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, and hopefully the fact that I'm wearing this up here isn't deflating to you. So if it is, I apologize. So... A little self-deprecating humor there. You don't have to boo. It's against me and my team, not you. So, anyways, um, I'm thankful to, to be here with you this morning. My, my name is Jay, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you. Um, welcome to, to what we call our family gathering. We're going to be talking about family a lot this morning, um, so I'll save some of that. But we've been going through a series called For the Good of the Garden State, Uh, over the last seven weeks, really. And what we've been doing through this series is we've been unpacking our mission statement as a church, which is that we believe that we're here, we exist, to multiply communities that are rooted deeply in the gospel, that produce fruit, which has changed lives and changed communities, for the good of the Garden State. So in other words, that through the gospel and what God does to us in Jesus, we would see such radical change in our hearts, such radical change in our community that the overflow of that would be a changed culture. Literally, that Jesus, in, his, in terms of what he wants to do in the Garden State, is not just to create a, a great church. That's not what he's about. He, he wants to see New Jersey saturated with the goodness of God. He wants to see every neighborhood, every workplace, every school uh, every network of friends living and breathing after his own heart. And so we, we spent the first six weeks unpacking several aspects of what we believe that would look like if Jesus got a hold of the garden state. And so we talked about these six things. I just, I'm just going to run through them. Reconciliation, generosity, justice, hospitality, communion, and blessing. So I'm not going to go back and cover any of those things. You can go back and and uh, listen to the podcast if you want to refresh on any of those or if you missed any of those. And then last week we talked about how, how, what does it look like for us to become vessels of change, to, to become agents of change in the world. And the truth is, in order for us to be the kind of people that see these six things happening around us, we need to be uh, people that come to a personal relationship with God. Literally, we need to have an encounter with Him so that He comes into our hearts and does the deep work of change that is so needed. Because the truth is, all of our lives, if we're not connected with Him, if we're not rooted in Him, our lives are primarily about us and not about Him. And so we need Him to do the work of reversing that. And so over the next three weeks, here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what is... What should we expect to be the result in our life if our hearts are living and breathing according to the gospel? If the good news of Jesus has, has a hold of us from, from the, the heart out, from the inside out, what should we expect to appear in our lives? What should the, the radical change begin to, we begin to see both in us as well as in us as a community, as, as a group of people that are together in this thing? So we've been going kind of outside in, and we're gonna, now we're going to work the opposite way. We're going to go inside out. And, and one of the great places where Jesus talks about this is if, if you want to know what's going to appear on your tree, you need to look at the root system. You need to look at literally your identity and where you're drawing your sense of self from. Because he says this in Matthew 12, verse 33 and 34. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. And then he goes on to say, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. All of us, our lives are continually showing, demonstrating what it is that we're believing in our hearts. 
And so often I, I think that the, the way we go about this relationship with God, the way that we go about trying to be His people is to say, I, I, I want to change my behavior. I, I want to change the, the things that I'm doing. And so we look at what we're doing, we look at our behavior, we look at, at the things that we can control, and we go, I'm going to change that. And the problem, Jesus said, is when you do that, you're, cha- you're exchanging, you're trying to paste essentially good fruit on a bad tree. We need to be a different kind of tree. And it's, it's only the gospel that makes us into that. And Jesus comes to us, maybe he's coming to you this morning, if, if you've been kind of maybe trying to do this self-change project in your own heart where you're just trying to become a better person, trying to do it okay, trying to obey him, trying to make it all okay, and Jesus is coming to you this morning and said, I'm, I'm the only one that has the ability to do that to you. I can make you into a new tree. If you abide in me, if you remain in my love, you actually will become a new tree. So we need to hear that, family. And we need to know what that looks like. So what does it look like? One of the greatest examples of this is when Jesus comes to his disciples and he brings them together after rising from the dead. And just before he ascends into heaven, he gets them all together. And and he's going to give them instructions about what the rest of their life is going to be about. He's going to tell them, this is, the, this is going to be the shape of your life. This is what I want you, your whole life to be about. And so we're going to be in Matthew 28, sometimes referred to as the Great Commission. And if you're going to follow along in the Bibles that we have, it's on page 698. 698. So let's pick it up in verse 16. Matthew 28. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I, I don't know about you, but this has always been encouraging to me, this verse. Um, you, you, here you have the disciples who, that have watched their master, their savior, their closest friend go to the cross on their behalf, get put in a tomb, and then rise from the dead three days later. They go out and they meet him in Galilee and he's alive. I mean, can you imagine looking the risen Jesus in the face and still having doubts? Now, I don't, how, how many of you still have doubts about who God is, what he's done in your hearts, and how he wants to empower you to live? I have those all the time. And I'm thinking, if, if the disciples had doubts, given the fact that they're staring at the risen Jesus in the face, it's okay for you to have doubts too. God's actually going to meet you in those doubts. He wants to change them. He's okay with that. So he goes on to say, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, what he's saying is, I have the ability to do what I'm about to tell you to do. I have the authority to tell you what I'm about to tell you. And then he says this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus comes to them and he, he, he doesn't go, hey, now because I'm, I've risen, because I, I've, I've come, because I have all authority, I want you to do a whole bunch of stuff. And if you do a whole bunch of stuff, then you'll have a new identity. And I'll be pleased with you and love you. You notice he doesn't say that. And yet, I'm convinced that most of us live our lives that way. We think that if we do certain things, if we obey, if we live up to a certain level, a certain standard of goodness, if our good outweighs our bad, then God will love us and he will give us a new identity. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus comes to them and he says, Here's what it looks like to be a disciple you get a new identity. You get, a new, you, you get to become a new creation, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. And you get it before you do anything to obey me. See, and then out of this new identity, out of what I do for you and in you and through you, you will become a new person. See, in other words, if you know who you are, you will live differently. That's the... That's the radical nature of the gospel. That's why it's so different. It's not, 
if I obey, then I get a new identity. It's I get a new identity, and then I get to obey out of that identity. Which, I don't know if you know this, but uh, even baptism itself is a picture of that, right? Because we often say, you know, when, when we go and we baptize people, we, we don't baptize people after 10 years of good service and a great record. When do we baptize people? Right away. If you come to, to faith in Christ, if you put your hope in Him as your Savior, I mean, if there's a pool of water right next to you, I mean, like the, the, what happened with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip's literally telling him about the gospel and they pass a little pool and he goes, why shouldn't I do it now? And Philip's like, absolutely, let's go for it. See, and the reason that he's able to do that is because God is giving this Ethiopian a brand new identity before he does anything to obey God. All he's done is put his faith in him. See, and that's what it means. It's to get a new name. Uh, we're going to celebrate baptism in four weeks. So if you haven't been baptized, uh, on November 27th, we're, that's when we're going to do it. So if you've been thinking about it, um, if it's something that you haven't done yet, if you have questions about it, please come and talk to me about that. But that's when we're going to do it is in four weeks from, from now. And I just want to encourage you, if you haven't heard, to be baptized is to get a new name. It's to get a new identity. So when we say you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, what we're doing is we're saying you have a new name. The, the, the Heavenly Father is now your, your Father, which makes you his, you his Son. And the Son, who's the King of all, now comes into your life and speaks truth and words of love over you. He's now your new teacher and you're His disciple. And the Holy Spirit, when you come to faith in Him, comes into your heart and enables you to actually live a new life that's not of your power to do. So He is your empowering presence of God in your heart and you are His sent one. Sent to live a different life and to tell people about Jesus. See, to be baptized is to get a new name, but it's not just that. It means to take on a new identity. It's to, to get saturated with a new reality so that you actually take on that reality. I, I've often said it this way, that if you take a white cloth and you dip it into red dye and you pull it out, what color is it now? It's red. And the Greek is to, to immerse something in something so that it takes on something. And that's exactly what it means. It's, you've been baptized red. You're, you can't be white anymore. You're, from that day forward, you will always be red. And that's the way that God does the order. That's the way that He works in our hearts when we come to faith in Him. We get a new identity based on His burial and resurrection. So uh, here's another way to put it. Think of when the Bible uh, talks about people getting a new name. Who are some people that get a new name in the Bible? Paul does, okay. Abraham. Peter. What's with the naming? Like, why does God feel like he has the ability just to come in and, like, mess with people's names? (laughs) Yeah, it's a clean start, right? So, I mean, even in the nature, you get a sense that there is a newness, right? If suddenly my name is Steve, like, then (laughs) Steve Brady, yeah. (laughs) That's a fresh start. It's a new birth certificate, right? It's a do-over. But here's the other thing. I mean, it's especially true in the case of Abraham. When Abraham, his previous name was Abram, he becomes Abraham What's that change? Do you know? The word Abram means father, which was ironic because he had no children. And then God comes to him. He says, I'm going to give you a new name. Guess what it's going to be? The father of many nations. And Abraham's going, huh? (laughs) It's worse than the other one. I couldn't even do the first one. How am I going to do the second one? And that's the point. That's the point. Because when God comes to him and says, I'm going to give you a new name, he's basically saying to Abraham, in and of yourself, apart from me, you had no ability to even fulfill the expectations of your old name. But I'm going to give you a new name. And here's the difference. I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to do it to you. 
I'm going to make it true of you. And what does he do? Absolutely he makes it true. He fulfills his expectations beyond his wildest dreams. And, and, and Abraham becomes the father of many, many people, as numerous as the stars are in the sky. Millions upon billions of people to this day trace their roots back to Abraham as their distant, long-lost father. Do you think that's an accident? That's the work of God. That's Him working in His heart. And so what God is saying to Abraham, He's saying to us, through the work of baptism and getting a new identity, whatever I'm going to do to you, I'm going to do through you. But you need me to do it to you first. You can't go and be the father of many nations unless I make you so. And the other thing it tells us is that God actually has the ability to declare things about you that aren't true yet. He gets to tell you things about you that you go, I never even dreamed that that would be true. And yet, simply in the fact that God declares it over you means that it's true even before it comes to reality. That's the amazing thing about God. Do you think it's an accident that God spoke the world into existence? I mean, I'm just imagining there's a moment in time between the time when God speaks it and it happens, this moment of going, could it actually be? When God goes, let there be light. And there's this, in, this brief pause of time going, can God actually have the ability to declare something and then it be so immediately? And then it, the writers of Genesis tell us that, that immediately after God spoke into the existence, light, there was what? There was light. This is the way that God works. So this is the way that it works. When God gives you a new name, it's his way of saying, this is now who you are, and this is now what I will do through you. So, we, so we're going to take a look at the, you may have seen this symbol before. We use it often to talk about our, our vision as a church, this idea of uh, the Trinitarian symbol, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when we're baptized into the name of the Father, then we are his children. The other way to say that is that we are his family. So that's why whenever we gather together, what do we say? I mean, one of the first things I always say every Sunday is we are the family of God. Why do I say that? Because God declared it so. It's not because we're good people. It's not because we lived a really great week this week. It's because God chose before the beginning of time, to make us his family. So we get to rest in that family. Regardless of how you've lived this week, you get it as your new identity if you're in Christ. So we have to know what this means, though, to be God's family, to live as God's family. And to know what it means, we have to go back to God's first family and take a look at what it looked like to be his family. And so that first family, as as you may know, is a a man called Adam and a woman called Eve, and they made up what it meant to be God's family. And they're a picture for us of what it looks like. So let's go back to that, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31. It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they can rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the entire earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. All this will be yours for food. And to all all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So let me just ask, I mean, real briefly, what what were some of the things that you heard about what it means to be his family? It's a good thing to be part of his family, right? Why is it so good? We're like our dad. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you, you hear a little foretaste of the Trinity happening there, Father, Son, and Spirit, a community of love and oneness and, and gratitude and, and self-giving love. I mean, it's just, that, that was happening since eternity passed, and we're made in that image so that we have the ability to do the same thing, just like our dad. Yeah, so he invites us into his work. Right? He, he, he wants us to care for creation in such a way that it shows what he's like. And then he says, you're, when I, even though I give you this responsibility, you're not going to be alone in it. I'm going to come and join you in the work. How great is that, right? I mean, how, how, I mean I've had those instances like where you're doing, a, I remember when I was growing up, of doing you know, things around the house and feeling like it was just a task that was way over my head. And then my dad came in and helped out with the task and just felt so much lighter. And we got to do it together and it actually became fun instead of just a, a downer. God wants to do that. So that, that's what I want your life to be about. When you go to work, I'm coming with you. I, I want to make it a joy because you get to do it with me. What else did you hear? He's generous, right? Every tree, every plant, every animal, it's all yours. You get it all. I mean, that should tell us something, that, that God, as a dad, doesn't want us to, to go without provision. He actually wants to provide for you. He wants not just to join you and make, make the work that you do joyful, but He wants to give you good things so that every need of yours would be cared for. That's amazing, isn't it? There's so much there. See, I don't know if you realize this, but this is the life that you were created for. This is the existence that He designed for you. He wanted you to be part of His family. That's why this concept of family is so important because we're, we're made to exist in a family that's oriented around our Heavenly Father. That we would be people that are constantly getting our life from Him, our direction from Him, our provision from Him, our purpose from Him, our joy from Him, every moment of every day. Now let me ask, does that match up with your experience? Or does it seem off? Does it seem like that's the way that the world works? With our Creator God as the very center of everything and everything working perfectly around Him, every need met, every desire for purpose fulfilled? No. No. See, the, the rest of the story tells us that our first parents decided not to live this kind of life. They actually, they, they fell for a lie that said that God isn't good and that He doesn't want to provide and that He doesn't give joy and that He isn't enough and that even apart from Him in relationship with Him, we could be like Him. We could be our own gods. We could be our own makers. We could, be, we could give ourselves our own identity. And whether we like it or not, whether we feel like we chose that for ourselves or not, all of us live in the ramifications of that decision forever and ever and ever. When you go on and you, and you keep reading the story, you find out the, the result is that both of them had their eyes open. This is what Genesis 3 says. The eyes of both of them were open. They realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Why was the Lord there? It was to pursue them in love. And what do they do? They hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you were in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree that I told you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, why have you done this? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe and painful labor. You will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce not goodness for you. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your own brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and dust you will return. Do you hear the brokenness? Do you hear the undoing? of the glorious family that God intended for us? What are some of the things that get broken? Do you notice? Relationships, yeah. Instead of being naked and unashamed before one another, we now hide and blame. Did you ever experience that? What else? Yeah, they have to provide for themselves. Rather than God taking care of their needs because they chose to be God themselves, now they have to provide for themselves. And instead of the ground producing all this good stuff, even if they didn't work at it, it it would just give it to them. And now it produces thorns and thistles and they have to work at it and toil at it. And even when they're good at it, it can be washed away. I I think of our brothers and sisters in Haiti right now. We're going to go on a trip to them a week from tomorrow to go and help rebuild some houses and some farms because in the hurricane, everything was washed away. And part of the reason that it pains me so much is because I realized it's our sin that did it. God didn't want them to go without food. He wanted their gardens to produce everything that they need. And now, now we have hurricanes that wash it away and we need to rebuild from scratch. He never intended this to happen. He never wanted this for us, his kids. What else did you hear? What's that? Yeah, they have a curse on them now. Childbearing, which was supposed to be not just life-producing, but, but to give life in the process, to be glorious in, in the, from beginning to end, now causes pain. And in many times, death. And that's irony upon irony, right? I mean, in the developing world, the fact that so many moms and so many babies lose their lives at the moment when life is supposed to be birthed into the world, that's the curse. It's incredible. And the world is supposed to be a hospitable place, and instead it becomes a hostile place. The man is supposed to be a a gentle, loving partner to his wife, and now he will rule over her. And now, instead of his work being a joy, he'll look to his work to be the definition of his life. And when it doesn't come through for him, he'll be crushed by it. Any of you ever experienced that in a job loss? You think, I'm no good anymore? That's the result of the curse. It's everywhere. We're so used to it that we don't see it. We're, in some ways, we're completely blind to it until the, the curtain gets pulled back on our eyes and we go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize my own heart was so broken. I didn't realize the world was so broken. See, we know deep down, once, once it gets presented to us, we know that there's something that's not right. We know that we were created to be in a family that's centered around God because that's what we were made for. It's in your DNA whether you realize it or not. And so when Jesus comes along and he says, this is what it means to be my follower, baptize them in the name of the Father, what he's saying is you get to be part of the family again. I'm making a new way and I want you to immerse them in this new reality of being part of God's family. He made a way. I mean, I, like, when I list, you know, look through the list of things in, in Genesis 3, I think, how in the world could God overcome that? I mean, that sounds bad, doesn't it? And it looks bad. I mean, you look around the world and you go, how in the world is God going to overturn this? And yet we know from God's story that he is. In fact, Ephesians 1, verse 5 and 6 say this about those who place their faith in Jesus. For he chose us. In him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God doesn't see you as full of blame and full of shame. 
He sees you as blameless if you're in Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. You're his sons. In accordance with his pleasure and will, he didn't do it begrudgingly. He loved to do it. He was enamored with you. He, he couldn't wait to do it for you. And all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's given to us freely to the ones he loves. See, because of the power of God to save, here's what's happened. You and I have gone from enemies of God to his dearly beloved children. Before the creation of the world, God the Father, along with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they decided that they would adopt you into his family. Why would he do such an extravagant thing for you? Is because he loved you so much that he was willing to bear the cost. And here's the thing you need to know. This is why it works this way. Because when, when we think that, that our relationship to him is primarily about what we do, we forget about the fact that God chose to adopt us. Uh, if you were a, a, you know, a, a two-year-old and you're waiting for parents to come along, you don't get to choose your parents. Right? I mean, if, it, if prospective parents come into the foster agency and they go, uh, that one, you don't get to go, well, they're not really the parents I was looking for. I'm going to wait it out a little bit. No, you're, you're adopted because your parents chose to adopt you into the family. And here's the thing. It works the same way with God. He pursues you. He loves you. He tracks you down. He goes to the uttermost reaches of the end of the earth, regardless of what you've done, regardless of how you've performed, regardless of how you have disappointed yourself or others around you, or maybe you think even he himself. Regardless of any of those things, he comes in and he goes, I've chosen you because of my good pleasure and so that the world would know that I'm glorious and gracious to all. And not only that, it cost him. It wasn't just that God said, hey, I'm going to do it and declare it and speak it and, and it will be so. It cost him dearly. I mean, I told you earlier in the series that Mandy and I were thinking about and started the process of foster to adopt and we're beginning that process next month so you can pray for us. But one of the things that I'm struggling with the most, just to be honest with you, is the cost to our own family to, to say yes to it. And I'm thinking about the cost to our schedule and the cost to our space and the cost to our finances and the cost to our relationship. And I'm thinking about all the costs. And one of the things I was reading was like just realizing that the cost to them for not saying yes is so much greater than the cost to me for saying yes. And there's part of me that's going, yeah, that's good. Like, that's really helpful to know. And, and I kind of feel the weight of the, their thing. But here's the thing, family. It's not enough for me to say yes. Even knowing their condition. You want to know what is enough, though? Knowing that God said yes. Knowing that he bared the cost. Because the cost that he bore to adopt me into his family was so much greater than the cost that I could ever bear to bring a child into our home. It cost him his life. It cost him his most precious son. And that's what John 1 says. John was great um, at, at explaining this and making it real to us. He says, Yet to those who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he, bec- he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will but born of God. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are, family. I I don't know when the last time is that you've experienced his love. Maybe you've been uh, like the disciples, living in doubt. Living in... uh, wonder if whether or not God is good and whether he loves you, whether he is for you, whether he wants good for you. I just want to let you know, family, there is no more, there's no greater thing that he could have done for you than to give his one and only son. I mean, how much more 
what he have to do to convince you that he loves you, to convince you that he wants you, to convince you that you're his dearly loved child, that he wants to bring you in and give you a new life. I mean, it's amazing. The, the fact, I mean, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know the treasure and how precious He is? He is the, the one and only perfect Son of God who lived in perfect community with God the Father for all eternity. And God said, I'm willing to give up this gift to have you. It's amazing. I don't think we realize just like what it means when we say that Jesus was perfect. And all the times that we rebel, all the times that we disappoint, all the times that we walk away, Jesus never did any of that. He always obeyed. He was always perfect. And yet he dies and gives up his life for us. See, by his death, we become God's family. So incredible. And that's actually part of how you know that you're his. Is because when I'm, even as I'm saying these things, if you belong to Him, you should be receiving this as joy upon joy. I mean, does this kindle something in your heart where you go, I, I can't believe it's true. I know it's true. I've known it's true for decades, and yet I hear it again, and my heart jumps for joy. That's how you know. Galatians 4, verse 6 and 7 says, Because your sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. One of the questions I always ask when, when I'm uh, in relationship with someone who's coming to faith in Christ and I'm seeing the changes in their life and I'm, I think they might be close, and, uh, and one of the questions I always ask him is, how do, you, how do you feel about God when you think about him? What comes to mind for you? And if they say words like, well, I think, you know, I'm trying to, to live up to him. I, I, I want him to think well of me. I, I, I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm going to church. You're not there yet. You're not there yet. Because if you, if you had the spirit of sonship, living and breathing in your heart, your, your spirit would cry out, He's my dad. He's been good to me, even when I wasn't good to him. He's been patient with me. He's been kind to me. He's been so gentle. He's been leading me. He's been whispering His words of truth into my ear. Maybe for you it's been a while, though. When's the last time you were overwhelmed by it? When's the last time it, it was just so real to you that you couldn't escape from it? I just confess to you, I was realizing when I was uh, looking at this message and getting ready for today, this week, that um, I need it, family. I need a fresh word from Him. I need a fresh moment with Him. And the only way that it happens is if the Spirit cries out on our behalf that we're His kids. Do you need that now? I'd actually just like to pray for you in this moment. Holy Spirit, would you come on us right now? Maybe we've been weary, tired, broken distant from you, hiding from you, blaming others. You put all that away in your Son. Holy Spirit, pour out the love of Jesus, the love of our perfect Heavenly Father on our hearts right now. Make it real to us. This moment, speak it into existence for us. Amen. See, they, and here's the, the second reality that happens. When this happens to you, when, when he comes and he makes you his kids, you not only get the love of him in you, but you get love towards one another. And so we, because we're his kids, we end up loving others like brothers and sisters. That's the second reality.
And so you, you, that's part of it as well. You know that you've experienced his love because you end up giving his love. 1 John 4, verse 7 to 11 says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. It doesn't come from us. It comes from him. He's the source. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Have you felt yourself lacking love for people? It's not an indication of what they've done to you. It's an indication that you haven't realized how much God has loved you. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, there it is. If we've been loved, we will love others with the same love that we've been loved with. A love that's full of sacrifice, a love that's costly, a love that isn't convenient. It's a family love, right? It's, it's to love others like brothers and sisters. So this is our identity. This is who we are in Him. We are God's family. We are children of God who love and care for each other like brothers and sisters. So let me ask this. What would it look like for us to love people that way? To love people with the same love that we've been given. What would be true of it? Be generous. generous. With what? Everything. Everything. All the the T's, right? We'd be patient with people even when they get on our nerves. (laughs) And we'd be quick to forgive. Maybe not even if it's quick, we would be committed to forgiveness. How would our love look to one, towards one another? It'd be without condition, yeah. Yeah, it'd look really weird, right? Which should give us all kinds of opportunities to give a reason for the hope that's within us. And does anybody ever ask you why you love people the way that you do? One of the great indications that, I mean, if you have gotten that opportunity, hopefully you've given the credit to the one who gave you the love, right? And not just say, well, I try really hard, or, you know, I go to church and my pastor tells me that I should be loving. And <laughs> hopefully there's something in you going, I've been loved to such a greater extent than the love that I've been giving to other people. And so if, if you've seen any love in me, it's because of him, it's not because of me, because I don't have it in me. I'm not the source. He's the source. We should be getting uh, opportunities to declare the kinds of love that God is putting in us. Right, family? I mean, we, we would celebrate with people if they were your... your If the people here were your brothers and sisters, you would celebrate life events with them. We would open our homes to people. We would live in community with them. We would protect and nurture the youngest and the, the least among us. We would be the big older brother, the big older sister that puts our arms around others and says, it's going to be okay. I want to help you. I want to lead you out. We would be sacrificial with our time and with our stuff when others have a need. I mean, and on and on and on. We, I mean, the, the, if you wanted to summarize it, we could say it this way. We, we would value people over things. We, we would consider others' needs as being greater than our own, as the Scriptures tell us. See, and one of the... the I, I'm suggesting to you the main reason... When we have seasons, when we have days, when, when we have months, when, when we're not operating in that kind of love, what John tells us is that the reason that we're not doing it is because in that moment we've forgotten God. We do not know Him in that moment. And because we've forgotten the love with which He's loved us, we fail to love others with that same kind of love. That's why I say if, 
If you, you, you go, man, I, I want to grow in this kind of love. I, I want to be this kind of person for others. I know that God can do it. But you're trying to do it just by thinking of all the ways that you need to do it. Stop it. It's not going to help. You'll be able to do it for a season and then it'll trail off again. Jesus said, if you want to love, remain in my love. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me. If I am in you, you will what? You'll bear fruit. You won't be able to stop the fruit because I'm the one doing it. See, so often when we think of loving people, we just think to ourselves, I don't have it. I don't have that kind of love. I don't have that kind of patience. I don't have that kind of forgiveness. No, you don't. You don't have it because you're not the source, but you have access to the source. That's why Romans 5, 5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You want perfect love? Do you want to be able to love your kids with a perfect love? Do you want to be able to love your spouse with an infinite love? Do you want to be able to love your neighbor with a self-sacrificing, patient, forgiving kind of love? It comes from Him. That's where it comes from. Don't depend on yourself. Don't look to yourself. Depend on the Spirit that God gave you to do the work that only He can do. See, we need to be people that stop when we realize that we haven't been loving. We need to be people that stop and say, God, help me. Save me from this. I've been selfish. I haven't been forgiving. I've been angry. I've been impatient. Make me new. Give me a new heart. This is something that uh, Mandy and I realize that we need desperately. We're thinking about some of the ways that we've slipped into patterns of just being angry with our kids when they don't live up to our expectations. And so when when they're doing a great job, they get all kinds of love from mom and dad. And when they haven't had such a great day, then mom and dad aren't so loving. We're a little bit more impatient. We're a little bit angrier. We raise our voice a little bit more. We send them to bed without things. I I mean, what kind of message are they picking up from us if that's true? That our love is conditional. That our affection towards them rises and falls on their obedience. Family, that's not the Gospel. God continues to pour out love to you. Whether or not you're obedient, whether or not you fulfill His will perfectly to the letter, He still loves you. He still pursues you. He's still hunting you down so that you would know His love. And the more that you know His love, the more you change. Is that good news to you? That's the only way that we change, family. Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2 remind us this. If we want to be this kind of people, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There it is. If you want to imitate your dad, then get to know what your dad has done for you. The more that you live out of it, the more that you realize it, the more it will flow out of you. We're going to do that together as a family. We do it every week. Um, but hope maybe particularly be meaningful for you this morning. When we come and gather at the tables, we come as broken people. We come as, as people. When we walk up here, we're not you know, getting up and going, wow, I'm such a great person. I deserve this. No, we're saying, I didn't deserve this. I was his enemy and God made me his child. And we we come around the table in groups because we're a family. Because we need it together. Because we want to look one another in the eye and we say, I am your brother, you are my sister. We lay down our lives for one another because he laid down his life for us. And we take the juice and we go, this is his blood that was poured out 
and shed for our forgiveness the fact that we weren't good kids and he did it anyway. And now we get to stand before him cleansed and whole and forgiven. And the bread is Jesus' body which was broken for us. His perfect life given for us so that we could be rebuilt as his kids. So that we could get a new standing before him. So that we could leave this place and actually love people with his love because his body is our body. I don't know about you, family. I need that news. I need it every week, but I'm feeling particularly in need today. So let's pray and let's come. Father, thank you that you love us. It's an infinite love, love that we could never deserve. So often we, we want to look for love in all the wrong places. We, we look to our jobs, as Adam did, to be the thing that would fulfill us. We look to our spouse, and we want perfect love from them, and they can't give it to us because they're broken too. We look to our kids, and they disappoint us and are just kids. And so they can't be a perfect source of it either. We look to all these things. Father, help us to see that when we look to these things, we reject you. But I thank you, God, that even in our rejection against you, while we are yet sinners, you died for us. You didn't say, because you've rejected me, I will reject you. You said, in spite of the fact that you rejected me, I will come after you and make you my dearly loved kids. Father, help us to know that, to rest in that, and let it flow out of us. The world needs to see a picture of this love. Our neighbors need it. Our coworkers need it. Our spouses and our kids need it. Let it begin with us. Holy Spirit, come. Change us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.